Thousands of miles from where we sit this morning is the heart of the Anglican Communion, Canterbury Cathedral in England. It is our mothership of sorts. And even if you have never been there, an extraordinary thing will take place when you enter for the first time. Some docent or verger or priest will greet you at the door with these words. Welcome to your cathedral. Welcome. Now, it's an audacious claim to begin with by virtue of the fact that you've never set foot in the sanctuary, only magnified by the fact that you may not feel any sense of ownership over the cavernous halls and hidden chapels in the cathedral. And this is exactly the response they intend. In welcoming every individual in this way, they are reminding themselves that the cathedral no more belongs to those who work and worship in it every day than it does to the stranger who has set foot in it for the first time. Now, this is not a means through which they intend to disregard responsibility. Rather, their interpretation of the scriptural imperative to become beloved community. The experience I have had at Canterbury Cathedral has been transformative every time. Yes, the worship is ethereal, and the music lifts you right up off your pew. But something else happens to me as I'm losing perspective in the stained glass. As I'm hovering over the spot where Thomas Beckett was martyred, or walking up the step which are bowed from the weight of so many travelers. I begin to get curious about myself. I begin to wonder how I know in my bones that I belong there after such a short period of time. I begin to wonder why their hospitality settles in my heart rather than somewhere on the surface. And each time I am reminded of the power of the message those stewards live. In welcoming me, in welcoming each of us, they are showing me something much more important than a grand cathedral or a holy servant of God. They are reacquainting me with Jesus and bringing to life the beloved community that God hopes for each of us. St. Michael's, you all are no different than the docents and the priests whom I've encountered in Canterbury. Your love for one another, for this place, brings the beloved community to life. It looks like a parishioner who grew up in this parish coming home to celebrate a milestone birthday for his father and delighting to discover that Beverly, who wrote the postcards when he was a birthday postcards, when he was a child, is still writing the birthday postcards today. It looks like Dan Ruff vulnerably and courageously sharing how donated blood from a stranger saved his dad's life and then spending hours of his Saturday facilitating a blood drive so that someone in this community might have the same experience. It looks like many of you traveling across town a few weeks ago to worship alongside our brothers and sisters from Lomax. It looks like preparing a feast for our neighbors at Cybert House and adjusting your expectations in the moment, shelving your disappointment that more people didn't show up, and getting to know those who did show up in a much deeper way. It looks like Dan and Pauline inviting families with children to their yard to celebrate Mardi Gras and including the whole street in that celebration. It feels like a warm welcome to someone who wasn't sure they belonged in church this morning or a game of peekaboo with your young pewmate. Your commitment to becoming beloved community takes my breath away all the time. You are well-versed in these habits which come from and resonate in a deeply spiritual place. 
This morning's lesson from the Gospel of Luke brings us the story of Zacchaeus. It is a seemingly straightforward narrative that evokes a surprising variety of interpretations. And the few details that we are given about this otherwise unknown man portray him as someone who should not be trusted. Not only was he a tax collector, but chief among his lot, and as a result, rich. He might as well be marked with a scarlet letter in terms of the biblical narrative. Since my earliest Sunday school days, I thought this was a story of Zacchaeus's impressive climbing skills and the oversized nature of his faith. Whether curiosity or determination, he was impressively committed to seeing Jesus. But look again. We're inclined to think this is a story about Zacchaeus seeking Jesus. But I wonder if it's actually a story about Jesus seeking out Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. The encounter Zacchaeus had with Jesus reminds us that we don't have to work quite as hard as we fear. A lot of energy in Christian circles can be and has been wasted in seeking to get ourselves in order so that Jesus might find us to be worthy companions. But the story demonstrates the ways in which Jesus is wholly uninterested in our polite conventions about worthiness. Put simply, none of it has any meaning for Jesus. The ways in which we are beloved in God's eyes are the source of our worthiness. This encounter with Zacchaeus was disturbing for the crowds who witnessed it, and it has the potential to be equally disturbing for us. Our natural tendency is to begin to wonder who we might be in called who we might be called to include that we've otherwise left out. What comforts or stereotypes might we have to lay down to make physical and spiritual space for others? But here's the good news. It's not up to us to decide who is invited into the beloved community. It's not up to me. It's not up to a visioning committee, the vestry, those who have been here longest, or those who have a passion for inclusion. Jesus is the one who does the seeking. Jesus is the one who does the inviting. We simply get to be the welcoming committee for the beloved community. So how do we do that? Well, we've been working on that for several months. Each Sunday morning, we take a few moments to reflect on what it feels like and looks like to be beloved in God's eyes. We've spent time recalling stories and thinking about people who remind us of that belovedness. And as we practice being grounded in our own belovedness, we develop a spiritual lens to recognize the belovedness in others. Practicing gratitude in its many forms opens our hearts for the beauty of belovedness to unfold. Stewardship is one of the ways in which we are asked to practice gratitude. On the surface, our annual stewardship campaign is a financial commitment to support the mission and ministry of the church. It is vital to our functioning. And there's a much more important spiritual component to the practice of stewardship. Money comes up more frequently than any topic in the Gospels. Jesus knew and saw the complicated ways in which humanity related to money. The ways in which we talk about our fears of the stock market fluctuation and the state of the economy may be specific to the 21st century, 
but the concept is as old as humanity. Our relationship with money impacts our spiritual health. To be overly attached, to be fearful, or to leave unexamined our feelings about money means we run the risk of allowing money to take on more power than it should have in the grand scheme of things. The ministry of Jesus is a testament to God's desire for humanity to flourish, no matter the material fluctuations life may present. This desire is so strong that God sends God's son to walk the way with us and remind us that flourishing can look like a lot of different things. The key to this flourishing is that it is a universal hope and invitation. We are not capable of flourishing in isolation. Having money or lacking money has never been and will never be a barrier to relationship with God. Spiritually, we are to remain thoughtful about how our money is one of the ways in which we can do our part to contribute to the kingdom vision of mutual flourishing. Spiritually, it is imperative to our individual flourishing that we do not become overly attached to the resources which are infinitely more meaningful when shared. The nature of beloved community is rooted in God's vision for mutual flourishing. This year's stewardship campaign will help us to realize a part of our commitment to mutual flourishing. We've spent five years adjusting our priorities so that 10% of your pledges are automatically designated towards our outreach partners. This commitment towards mutual flourishing is just one of the components of our annual mission spend plan that grounds us as a community working towards building God's beloved community. Ideally, we would all make the same commitment to automatically give away at least 10% of what we have. And in the meantime, we work towards that aspirational gift. So, what is the ask? The ask is to imagine that it is Jesus who has been seeking you all along and how that changes what you might do as a result. The ask is to spend time prayerfully reflecting on the ways in which you have been blessed with resources, no matter the size of that financial pot. Then, consider what you hope for this community. What do you hope for St. Michael's, for those who are here, and for those who have not yet found us? How might this church in the heart of the neighborhood reflect the nature of God's love? What do you hope for the community beyond these walls throughout Arlington? Wonder with me about what more might be possible. And then take a risk and dare to imagine it is possible. How might we grow the beloved community which has taken root in this place? When you make your pledge, I hope you will give generously, assured that God continues to call us into the beauty that is mutual flourishing. Amen.